Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Marketing Podcast. And um, this is going to be really fun talking to Jeffrey Smith today. Um, He is general partner at SIP Global Partners. He sits on three or four boards, and he's a founding partner at Next Boston. Now, when we were talking about this, I just started laughing because I'm like, okay, I run one company (laughs) and he's running all that and then i'm fascinated by this because he's lived all over the world he's run successful businesses so um this conversation is going to be really really good on how to uh grow businesses internationally so welcome jeffrey thanks so much wendy it's a pleasure uh, to be here so i remember you telling me a story about when you graduated from college and uh, shortly thereafter, you moved right over to Singapore, I think it was, right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, so tell me about this. Well, we, we had a family business in Asia for probably 30 years at that point, mostly located out of Hong Kong. And my mom's, uh, mom's family had uh, uh, eight or 10 uh, businesses in Asia at the same time. So it wasn't unusual for us as a family um, to spend three or four years, you know, working on a project uh, in, in Hong Kong and Singapore and Indonesia, for example. But uh, I, I had literally no thoughts of what, what I was doing when I left school. Um, and uh, so I, I, six days after I graduated, um, I went out to run a new family uh, business in Singapore. And it was meant to be a six-month gig to, frankly, put some money in the bank to go back to business school and, and to get started on a more traditional course. And it was just one of those things that happened to be sort of right place, right time. It was fun. It was a, the, biz, the, the world was expanding at a remarkable rate at the time. Uh, we were working mostly in the petrochemical sector where, you know, the business in Asia between the Middle East and, and, and ASEAN countries was growing 300% a year. So it just wasn't something you could leave. So I was, you know, as, as opposed to six months, uh, still there 14 years later, frankly, and we'd grown quite a significant business. We'd acquired uh, eight or 10 companies uh, into, brought everything into to Singapore and Hong Kong, ran the, ran the companies out of there and uh, became the biggest petrochemical engineering company in Asia at the time. So yeah, it was, it was, but again, you know, once in a, a once in a career sort of situation where things were growing, we had terrific people. The 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 uh, uh, work we did in Japan was exceptionally successful, given their stage of of, of engineering at the time, and uh, so it was just a lot of fun. And and you know, traveling 10, 11 months a year to, you know, the best part about working in that space in the petrochemical or, or the, the the oil and gas space um, is that you know the facilities are not in Paris or or in Brussels. Um, so I had a chance to visit, you know, every conceivable corner of Indonesia, every, I, I think I've been to 45, 50 different places in Japan, um, you know, built the first, oh, um, helped build the first uh, oil and gas plant in Chittagong, 
uh, in southern Bangladesh when you still had to fly from Singapore to London and then back to Dakar get down to Chittagong. <laughs> you know, so it was, it was, it was a tremendous time. Um, so, uh, you know, it just never was right to leave uh, until we, uh, we sold the company in the early 90s. Okay, so this is back in the 80s where there's no internet, there's no cell phones, so com and communications, long-distance calls were still really expensive back to the U.S. Absolutely. And your family is back in the U.S., but they, right? Well, my family's in the U.S. I had cousins in Dubai even then. Um, you know, I had a uh, brother who was... <clears throat> was uh, was out uh, uh, in, in working on the way, so people were completely distributed. Uh, so it wasn't an unusual situation. But no, you're absolutely right. I mean, my first, very first job, uh, we had a telex operator. Um, I'm sure your <laughs> your, your listeners have no idea what a telex is, but it's sort of a an open tube uh, for for written, almost like telegram like uh, communications. Extraordinarily expensive, so yeah. no punctuation. You know, just in, and an operator who, who would be on to, to do that. So, yeah, um, you know, the fax was a remarkable innovation. And uh, <laughs> you know, with that old paper that would come off on yeah, the no, no, thermal paper, <laughs> and, you know, a, a whiteboard uh, in every engineering office that would print out that same paper so that, you know, you could sign off when people didn't speak the same language. Uh, certainly, communications has changed, you know, absolutely remarkably. But, you know, we still did telephone calls three nights a week at three o'clock in the morning, catch up calls all the time. I mean, you, 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 it was an expense that you factor in in those days. Um, you know, I think there are so many things that are dramatically more efficient. I, you know, I think back when I, again, first started, I had two assistants, one of whom was effectively a secretary. I know it's a, a taboo term today, but I mean, you know, so the inefficiencies were remarkable and somehow work got done. So. Right, you know, right. But, yeah. So you're, so you're six days after graduation at Brown. You're taken over there, dropped in. You've got cousins and families distributed all over. Now, do you walk in as a manager at this point, or what did you go this over was, to do? And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. This was um, a raw startup. Um, we had shifted a, a manufacturing operation of one of our products and, and services um, to Asia to support our growing Asian customers. So it was, it was absolutely start from scratch. I mean, it was a startup with five or six machines in a flatted factory out in the West Coast and to us in Singapore. We had a factory in Hong Kong that had been operating for a couple of years. Um, so no, I, I didn't take over anything. This was a raw startup. Um, so we, you know, we had sold to many of these people in the past, but now having a local presence, we started from scratch, built, you know, built a team, um, built a manufacturing capacity that would, you know, by the end was 15 or 20 times the initial size, um, built a, a close to an 800 person team over the next 14 years. So, uh, no, it was a raw startup. Um, oh my gosh, what an opportunity for a college grad to just go over and do that. It was uh, absolutely, and again, you know, when this to be, not to be falsely uh, modest, but the business was growing so rapidly. Uh, the customer set you could take business without anybody noticing there was there were no other european companies doing anything remotely what we were doing at the time so we brought in technology and services and capabilities that just didn't exist so to some extent you would have had to work at failing you know it was it was just one again once or twice in a career if you're lucky you, you stumble into a situation that's you know extraordinarily uh, uh successful <laughs> 
I mean, I think you're selling yourself short there because you can walk in and not, I mean, you're working cross culture. You're, you're talking not a lot of experience. I mean, no experience fresh out of Oh, no, no, no. I've worked in machines since I was 12. So I could cut metal as well as anybody. Okay. So from 12 to 21, (laughs) you had some experience there, but no management. You hadn't worked in a, in another country. Um, and in Singapore and Hong Kong, they they spoke English well enough at that point that yeah that you were communicating across there yeah okay so but but it didn't it didn't stop there I mean you grew that country, company after twelve years but then you went on to take over some other seven different companies in different countries and turn them around. Well, yeah, there's I mean, the the we've always had this next Boston advisory work, advisory and investment work. Um, so in between projects, I spent six months in the Bahamas turning around uh, a troubled uh, skincare, quite a large skincare products company sold that uh, when they had a. Uh, oh, there was a particular push in the early 90s to uh, nationalize most foreign owned businesses. We did that. Uh, we had the, you know, business in Italy constantly because a number of the companies we had bought and worked with uh, were Italian-based. So started there, and then I shifted full-time um, to Italy in uh, in '94, uh, basically. Okay, so you walk into a company, and it sounds like it was cosmetics, and then what was the other <laughs> industry? Hair care, skin care, suntan lotion. I mean, a, a large personal, basically a Caribbean and uh, South American based skin care, hair care company, mostly for Afro-Caribbean uh, um, um, consumers. Um, quite a, <laughs> a unique company, but you know, about 30 million in revenue. So at the time, a decent sized local company. Okay. So you have oil and gas experience, and then you go into a hair care. And then what was the company in Italy? Um, in we started, I had some of my first clients were in Italy. Uh, one was called Famosi. Um, this is still one of my closest friends, actually, who is, uh, uh, their primary business is diamond merchants. Uh, they have a seat on the Bourse in Amsterdam, and they were the, some of the, they actually were at the time the biggest diamond merchants in, uh, in Asia. Uh, coming out of coming out of Antwerp, and uh, very close friends, but also colleagues, and we built a, a financial product, a diamond-based financial product, with them um, in the mid '90s. So these are just some of the advisory uh, projects uh, that Next Boston has taken on over the years. Right. So, so the point I'm trying to make here is you've gone in across different industries, some that might have been struggling. They've got, you know. So, what do you do? as you walk in and you've got to turn them around, fix them, cross culture, cross language. You know, this will be probably a theme through our conversation, um, but you know, there is somewhat, and, and it, at this stage, these were projects that were opportunistic. Um, people you know, situations that arise. I mean, if I had to describe myself after so many years, it took a long time, but it would, you know, I'm really a serial entrepreneur at the end of the day. And these are, entrepreneurial projects, whether you do a startup or whether you take something on and, and redo it and sell it. I mean, these are basically entrepreneurial approaches. And there, there is somewhat of a system. I mean, you know what you're going to do with people within six weeks. You know what you're going to do with product positioning within 12 to 14 weeks. You, you have a six-month plan on the table to reestablish you know, positive cash if that's an issue, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And these, these are – the cultural issues are – 
absolutely, utterly secondary. And I, I don't mean to downplay the challenges of, of any situation, but walking into a troubled or, or problematic or a company that's bankrupt or on the verge of it or whatever the circumstance may be, you know, on the list of challenges, for instance, not having any cash next week, you know, knowing which hand to use in a dinner is slightly secondary to, you know, running out of cash. There are fundamental issues. Yeah, that's a good that point. Are, yeah. And I don't mean to, again, to downplay for a moment the importance of cultural awareness or, or knowing what you're working with. It's just that the business itself is often uh, so much more important, at least at first. And again, you're hiring immediately or selecting from existing people a team that's capable of doing the work at hand. I mean, that's the real, you know, there, there are two things that go on in, in the work that I, I did in the past. I and mean, one is... Um, again, selecting the team that's going to get you through the next 18 months. And you know, hopefully that's available internally, um, if, if not externally. And, and you know, secondly, positioning the company for something its customers want. And you know, those take teams. And I, I wouldn't claim for a, for a moment to have the, uh, I mean, finding terrific salespeople for the environment in which you're working is obviously one of those immediate steps. Those people clearly have to have contacts, Rolodexes to use the, the old metaphor, mm -hmm. um, you know, cultural awareness in whatever circumstance they're working in. Um, again, but that's at a slightly different level. You know, my, my job is to be moderately well-behaved, not to offend people any more than necessary. <laughs> <laughs> moderately well-behaved and not yeah. offend. That's, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, you know, when I, I, I wouldn't claim, you know, ever, I, I've worked probably in 35 countries over the years. And, and, you know, again, you're trying to be a reasonable participant in the economy you're involved in. You're trying to be reasonably polite and get along, but you know, I'm not staying at these things for 15 years. You know, you're coming in, uh, you're, you're speaking specifically about some of the restructuring work. You're coming in, choosing a terrific team, getting them, you know, set up to, to succeed, to have a company positioning that the customers want and need. And, you know, in many cases, then selling the company. And, and these are, you know, so that's an activity level that's just a half a step removed from having to be deeply immersed in a, in a culture or a, a local economy or something of that sort. Now, you know, having built a, a significant business in Asia, that was slightly different. I mean, that's, you know, clearly one has to, in that case, I, I was doing the selling at first. I was doing, you know, absolutely everything. Um, right. Yeah, one has to be a little bit more attuned at that level. So, sorry, it's kind of a complex answer, but. Yeah, no, no, no. It's it's fascinating. So, okay. So, yeah. I mean, I love that moderately well behaved and not offend. Usually, people say you have to stay curious and open and ask questions and that. But but you know, you're you're coming at it from a very you know accounting based approach. The money counts and don't offend. Well, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's it's plus it, and minus. You have the, the the points you're making are, are enormously important, but in the work I've done that you're asking about the yes. restructuring work, you're in a real hurry to f make things at least stable. You're asking questions all day long, but they're business questions. What you know, what works, what doesn't work, what do customers want, what you know, what's broken, what's fixable, who is exceptionally ambitious and buried under a rock somewhere. Uh, you know, these these are you know, you're asking questions. 15 hours a day, cultural questions are 
secondary to getting things sorted out. You know, that's all I'm suggesting. It's not a lack of curiosity. The reason I did that work for so long was because it is so intellectually stimulating. I mean, you, you come into a, a brand new environment, um, brand new markets, brand new uh, sort of uh, uh, technologies, because it's always been very tech heavy. Um, and in six weeks, you better be able to go out and sell something. So, right. you know, that, yes, it's only questions. Every time you meet someone, you're, you're 100% further along than you were the day before. Um, so, but, I, but, I mean, that goes back to cultural diversity and running a good team is that if you stay focused on the goal and get everybody aligned on that and don't worry about all the other politics or junk that can get in the way, you're going to have a team that's going to work well together. So I think you're articulating that in a well, you know, practiced way as you go in you find the people who are motivated who are going to do the job you set a goal in front of them and make sure that that's what your customers want so it's it, it's a, i just like the way you you're, no, you're talking a, about and, it and yeah that's a great way to sum it up uh, wendy and, and again there are environments and cultures where that is easier and where it's more challenging there's no doubt about that so i don't mean to minimize the the points it's just that i would be reluctant to take on a project where I thought that cultural barriers made immediate change difficult. So, so is that know, company culture or is that country culture? Both, both. both. Doing a restructuring in, in Japan, for example, where I, I mean, I've worked for 30 years off and on, my presently in a partner in a, in a Tokyo-based VC, and I love this. I mean, we're doing some remarkable work today, and I, it's one of the best things I've ever done. Um, but I wouldn't want to ever have to restructure or, or reposition or make the kind of changes in a Japanese company that would be necessary to rescue something that was in a, in a challenging position. It's so much more consensus-based. I mean, you know, you know the drill, uh, that rapid change is hard. Oh, interesting. So you love working with the Japanese culture to build something, but to go in and restructure would take too much time. So when you're talking about six or 12 weeks to get something moving what cultures besides the u.s because they're so goal focused could is it or what countries would you feel more comfortable doing that in besides we've you know, had Japan? great success in northern europe we've had good success uh, um, in italy believe it or not um you know uh, uh, we've had excellent success uh, throughout southeast asia um you know I, I i think it's more that there are environments that are might be challenging I, I, and again, I, I, I think the attempt to systemize this is excellent, but I'd like to stress that it is really, my work at least has been entrepreneurial, which means that there's an evaluation of every circumstance with multiple factors and country and culture and, and, and you know, ability to move quickly, ability to achieve finance. The risk of bankruptcy is the thing is, you know, for instance, I, I don't think I would do it in Italy again, where bankruptcy laws are so onerous. Um, Singapore, for all of its progressive approach, the bankruptcy laws are, are very severe. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of factors uh, involved. And I, I haven't, you know, I, I've, I've finished with this work two or three years ago, and I, it was a terrific run. I loved the, again, the intellectual stimulation. Um, I'm not sure I have the emotional energy after 25 years. <laughs> to, to do it much more it's uh, you know there it's a, a an extremely rewarding uh, both sort of personally and can be financially there on the other hand you know that this kind of work there's some real ups and downs um you know yeah. quite severe uh, and challenging failures along the way and you want to make sure that your risk mitigation is balanced in the countries you're working in as well 
Yeah, and it was interesting. When I was in MBA school, I went to talk, so I did take that path where I didn't go international, but I did go get my MBA. You know, my alter ego would have been you. I would have gone right over internationally. But when I was there, I thought, oh, how cool it would be to go in and restructure companies. And and it, it, But it's hard. You know, I've never done that. I've stepped with the entrepreneurial side, so I, I understand about the draining. And it's interesting that you talk... Was, was Colin Bladen the dean at that oh time? Oh, my God. I was there Colin after was, him, but I had uh, him. Did you, Colin was my uh, original partner in Next Boston. Was he really? Yeah, he lasted about six weeks, but uh, he and Louis Quagliata, who was the uh, lead partner and Amia for Booz Allen, were the two people I started Next Boston with. So, so how did you meet up with Colin Bladen? I, I worked with Lewis on a number of projects in Italy. Um, Lewis was both Boston, and, and that's where the name Next Boston came from, was Lewis, uh, was both in, uh, um, um, in Milan, Rome, and, and then also Boston. He and Colin were best friends. So, I mean, I, to the best of my knowledge, they're still in touch, and I think uh, Lewis is up in New Hampshire uh, time to time since he retired. Um, so we actually, Next Boston started on a thesis out of talk or a question that, because the, if, if you remember, they were just starting with private equity. Uh, yeah. Center. Yeah. Uh -huh. And one of their big questions, why everybody uh, was so underweighted in Italy, all the private equity firms that had allocations in Europe had, you know, systematic country allocations and Italy was always grossly underweighted and they had written thousands of page, pages and at least two or three PhDs thesis on, on why Italy was so underweighted. So we actually started uh, Next Boston to address that issue and prepare Italian companies for, the, for private equity investment. That was the original thesis. Um, so that, that's how it got started. That was way ahead of time, too, because I graduated from there in 97. Mm -hmm. And when I got out, I went to work at the portfolio companies of VC companies. And very few were doing international work. And even when I became owner of this, I bought this company mm -hmm. 17 years ago. VCs were like, yeah, we're just too focused on domestic. But over the last five to 10 years, oh, I've seen VCs now paying attention to the international world, um, the, you know, the international marketplace. And so when you started that focusing on Italy, that was early well, on. When, when that was private equity. Um, and private yeah. equity was working worldwide from, you know, early on, but also with a major surge from the mid-80s, you know, uh, that they were at least 15 to 20 years ahead of where the venture world is. I mean, um, so it was, it was more, uh, again, an intellect, kind of a, an interesting question. And again, people had written massive theses on the cultural differences in Italy and why it wasn't suited for private equity and family ownership. And it really was complete nonsense. It, it just, yeah. The companies were too small and it didn't suit, you know, there were literally at that time only 20 companies with more than 2 billion in revenue. So, you know, whatever cultural reasons there might've been, when something like Piaggio came up, you know, for sale, you know, there were 65 private equity groups who registered for the sale process. It wasn't that you couldn't do private equity in Italy. There just weren't any large companies. And, you know, so... Was that government regulations or just the way that businesses the are built? Economy, or The post-war economy had been so much family. It, it started from absolutely zero. Literally uh. zero. And it just, between the clusters of, of small suppliers you know, doing a, a lot of feeding a lot of the larger groups between the extraordinary uh, entrepreneurial sort of spirit after the war and, and enthusiasm. Um, 
a banking system that was exceptionally friendly to uh, small startups at the time. Um, no, it just had grown that way. And, 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 and again, our, our thesis was that we would combine, you know, do little roll-ups and make them suitable for private equity investment. It was singularly unsuccessful. <laughs> well, roll-ups are hard. I mean, yeah, that's exactly, and it just you know, there's only there was only one place in the world that Booz Allen was discounting their their fees at that time, and it was Italy. It's they're not inclined to pay for serious serious consulting. So, um, you know that that we pivoted and you know shifted to the work that we did for the next twenty years, which was as as you described, sort of investing in and running, fixing larger broken tech companies. So has that changed with the private equity more recently or is, is no, no. particularly it's still, it's, I mean, people, it, this is now years down the road, people have adjusted right. allocations. Um, you know, people have a much more sophisticated view of what European allocation looks like. This has been a, a 30 year process at this point. So, so um, what are the hottest companies for private equity investment? Do you think the hottest companies, countries, Oh, countries. Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, I haven't been doing this for almost uh, 10 years now. Okay. And, you know, I'm just not super up to date with, with, with where people are, are allocating. Um, you know, I've been much more involved in, in tech and VC-like tech work for the last 10 years. Um, so I, 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 I'm not sure where people are, are really focusing their time now. But, you know, Japan is on the verge of another private equity attempt to, to invest the, uh, the valuations in the stock exchanges are so remarkably different than the U.S. with the same metrics that there's an arbitrage play there that's going to be interesting. But that's because I'm there. I see it. So, you know, it may or may not be the hottest place, but it's certainly a place that people have consistently been interested in. Also, you know, Elliot in their work in Korea. Um, certainly it's an intriguing couple of spaces. But yeah. I, what about Israel? I'm hearing a lot about that, too. I mean, you know, Israel is a, uh, just an incredible place, and the Tel Aviv uh, Stock Exchange has uh, made a major effort to revive itself, you know, for local listings. They finally started taking tech companies in in a serious way. So you're always going to have, uh, always, certainly for the foreseeable future, have an extremely active both VC and private equity uh, interest in Israel. Um, you know, just a, a remark. And with the Abrams Accords, you know, coming all of a sudden they go from having a six or seven million person economy to having a local economy of 70 million. It's going to make an enormous difference being able to work with Saudi, work with Bahrain, work with the UAE um, for Israeli companies. So you see it, I mean, we're, we have a, our VC firm has a significant office in Riyadh and uh, you know, we're seeing just a remarkable change day by day, pandemic or not. Um, Israel's economy and the, the Gulf are, are integrating at a, just a remarkable pace. It just makes it even a more interesting country. Oh, okay. That's fantastic. You know, I want to jump back because you're talking about a bunch of different countries. And then you were also talking about doing the turnarounds. And the most important thing was choosing the right team and figuring out what the customers want. Mm. And so, so you're, you're, plopped in and you've got to figure out what the customers want and you're talking to people I mean how do you go about doing that when you don't understand the culture you're depending on the sales reps you're depending on the people who run the business are you doing customer research how do you go through figuring that well, out again 
you know, obviously customer research is fundamental, but we're talking, anyway, again, I, you know, I haven't, as I, as I just, I haven't done this for 10 years or so, but you know, nonetheless, yeah. uh, it's, um, there might be more marketing terms around that, but the basics come back to the same thing. Yeah. Basics come back to the same thing. You have who you have in a hurry. You know, the fact I'm constantly talking to people who'd like to sell, or was talking to people who'd like to sell us coaching services. There's no time for coaching. I mean, this is the program. <laughs> if you'd like to get on it, we're going to do incredible things. If not, I'd be super happy to help get you the next job. I mean, this, this is, you know, we're talking about six week, 12 week, 14 week time horizons, often companies that'll be out of cash in two or three months. I mean, I, I don't mean to overstress this because some of these situations are very profitable, but they're still troubled in some fundamental way. Mm -hmm. My team wouldn't be there. Um, and again, we're investing in these things too. So, you know, there's a, a, an urgency on all sorts of fronts. Mm -hmm. So the same thing with the market research. Of course, that's important to over time for sort of phase two when you're trying to really, you know, refine the company into something special. But, you know, phase one is let's go see the top 10 customers. Let's look at the numbers involved and make sure that the top 10 customers, that we see them in the first week and that they're, you know, what do they want? What, what would they like to have? What would, is there a reason for this company to exist? Typically, I've done that level of research or one of my team members has done that level of research to begin, you know, because we're investing, um, you know, that we have to have a thesis and a clear understanding how we think we would get this company back to cash positive and at least on an e, you know an even keel within uh, basically our goal is within within three months um so you've done a fair amount of that research and talked to customers in advance i mean i never would take something on without having talked to the two or three largest customers beforehand um but again in the next you know where is where is the who wants this thing does it deserve to exist is it just kind of plodding along does it have any future are there people who want what it has um, you know, those are the fundamental issues that need to be determined immediately. And are you bringing whatever goods or services it is to people, not only that they want and need, but in a way they can afford to pay for it or want to pay for it or budgets that exist? You know, the, 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 these are really fundamentals. Um, and I don't mean to oversimplify, but if the first phase is simple. Are there people who want to pay real money? You know, when you reach in your pocket and take cash out to pay for something, it's, it's, uh, it better be worthwhile. Yeah, no, I think you're bringing up a good point. It's a show on global marketing, but you're having to do this very fast, either in turnaround or investment, is figure this out. So you've just given a nice formula is go talk to the top 10 customers and ask them, talk to them. Immediately, I mean, you know, the first two, three days, talk to every employee you can possibly get your hands on, you know, regardless of how remote. First thing you start, first thing I do, and again, any project we take on would be by, would have taken on, would it be by definition, um, people who are operating in at least five to 10 countries. I mean, again, that would be a criteria for us taking something on, that there's a significant, because again, why am I in some modest way better than, in, you know, any number of other people that can do this. And if their business is distributed amongst 10, 12, 15 countries, and we took on a bankruptcy case where they had 74 different subsidiaries in 74 different countries. Um, you know, that, that's something where my team and I and my colleagues and I and the people I know would bring more value to the table than someone who might be much more experienced in the industry than I am. You know, but you know, it's, you're trying, you know, obviously you want to bring value. 
and uh, so that's you know always and the, the you know the, the the just to back to your point um the, along with customers you want to go see all the remote salespeople in a, in a hurry because typically the further you are in a troubled company from the headquarters the smarter you are you know if you've been dropped off in siberia and you've somehow managed in a broken company to thrive and sell a lot of stuff you're going to have a terrific idea of what the company should be doing i mean almost always the remote teams are the are the strongest in a troubled company oh that is really good advice because they're they're on the ground their whole relationships are with the customers I mean, if they're not very useful they died years ago or did something more you know <laughs> on the other hand you tend to find these little nougats of of, of capability and quality and, and customer proximity and, and really say, otherwise they wouldn't have survived. Right, right. Reminds me of the old joke with the guy with the speech impediment who goes up to, uh, he wanted to have a sales job and, uh, and the company kept saying, no, no, no. They didn't think somebody with a speech impediment could, could sell. So they send him off to Alaska to sell toothbrushes and his sales skyrocket and he ends up he was offering chips and dip but uh when people tasted the the dip they'd go oh this tastes like poop and he'd go do you want to buy a toothbrush <laughs> but there he was out in alaska everybody he knew had a toothbrush from him <laughs> i mean there we you know we we there we, we talk about a, the water treatment company it's one of our largest product uh, projects and it was based in Klagenfurt, Austria, and uh, and KL in Malaysia, Penang as well. But in reality, that was where it ended up. This was the bankruptcy with 64, 74 countries, whatever it was. Um, they actually were based out of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. They had 74 people in Pittsfield. They hadn't sold a project in the U.S. in almost 10 years. So they really didn't know what was going on yeah. in the rest of the world. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was an enormous amount of internal corporate navel-gazing when the people in Malaysia and Austria were just monsters. They, they, had, they were running exceptionally successful businesses. So, you know, in that case, for instance, we, uh, the, I worked with a family that was the owner. We uh, bought 10 of the most competent and capable groups back out of bankruptcy worldwide, shut down the U.S., and were able to sell back to the family an exceptionally successful business in four years. <clears throat> wow. None of, having, none of it in the U.S. Absolutely none of it. Wow. Yet the family was in the U.S. So they I mean, had a... They, they were capable of investing worldwide. They were quite competent and uh, exposed people, you know, with some very senior day jobs. Um, this is something they'd inherited. You know, it was a 110-year-old company. Um, but, uh, you know, the company at the end of the day was based in KL and, uh, and, and Austria. And, uh, you know, its biggest market by the time we sold it back was China, where they hadn't ever sold before. So, you know, but the team in, team in Kuala Lumpur and Penang were just remarkable. I mean, absolutely remarkable people. Um, so is that when you ended up living in Kuala Lumpur, or was that for something else? Yeah, no, no, that's the main reason I was in KL and uh, in Kuala Lumpur um, was, was that project, although, you know, we've done a number of things there over the years. It's, uh, you know, at Boston, New York, from Singapore sort of thing, you know, it's uh, just- Well, tell uh, me about Kuala Lumpur. I don't know that much about it and I'm fascinated. I mean, it, Malaysia is a remarkable country. It's uh, different in so many ways uh, from other Asian countries. Um, many characteristics, uh, you know, British in the colonial period, um, very, very mixed ethnically. Um, 
sort of an equal mix of, of uh, Chinese and local Malays, Javanese, uh, Indonesians mixed in with a significant Indian community, similar to perhaps the makeup of Singapore 40 years ago. Um, very, by, by definition, multi, I mean, multicultural in every way. Um, you know, just a terrific place to, to work. Um, very uh, underpopulated uh, compared to most of Asia from a density perspective. There are only 25, 30 million people in a very you know, significantly large country um, split between peninsular Malaysia, which was you know, also uh, in some way driven by the straight settlements of Penang, and Malacca, Singapore, um, which have a very distinct culture, as, as well as East Malaysia, which is uh, the northern uh, third of Borneo. So, you know, incredibly diverse, enormously rich in resources, super smart people, disciplined banking system, the center of Islamic banking worldwide. Um, just, you know, a remarkable country in every way. Probably its first big international successes. I mean, after the, the, the sort of commodities economy of rubber, tin, uh, you know, resource-based. You know, the next day, the Penang was the center, of the first early center of electronics manufacturing in Asia. Um, well before any other uh, center and, you know, still maintain a decent uh, uh, electronics sector. Um, you know, I mean, if you, if one had a family um, and one needed some space, um, you know, Malaysia is still probably the best quality of life for an expatriate in, in all of Asia. I mean, there, there are challenges, look, but this, this isn't the best you know, the best forum for, for some of that. But, uh, you know, like any, any country, there are challenges. There, there are some inter-ethnic issues. Um, you know, there are clearly um, challenges for certain groups. But uh, in general, it's uh, certainly a place uh, that I feel very strongly and positively about. Oh, that's good to know. I have a good friend from Malaysia. So uh, now I know a little bit more about her, her <laughs> country. <laughs> I mean, I know from food standpoint, education, family experience, a beach, but now, now I know more about the, yeah, the, the, the beach. Is the only, I mean, on top of everything else. Uh, that's what I've heard. That's what's, what's caught my eye. Certainly not topless, but, but lovely. Not topless. <laughs> oh, it's a very conservative country. Yeah, today. So, you know, yeah. Tourists do get mixed up occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we were back on knowing your customers. So that's how you do the quick and dirty is you would talk to them, see the remote salespeople. And then we were talking about um, the, the kinds of companies that you invest in because you're bringing the international experience in. So you said you, you look for companies with five to 10 countries at least. Yeah, major markets or subsidiaries, exactly. Okay, what are, what are your other investment criteria? One again is that we have to have a thesis that they can be cash positive within uh, three months. Um, you're just in these companies typically imagining that there's absolutely no we don't do or didn't do um, financial restructuring in that way. You're just assuming there's no new cash for the next year. Um, you're assuming that you're going to have to find a way to is survive and rebuild from internal resources. So having a, a clear financial model for a return or a maintenance of, of at least cash neutrality uh, is, is fundamental. For, for us. And then, you know, the, 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 perhaps the most important factor, you're looking for a second tier team of management and experts and quality you know, people working at that second tier who are just remarkable at their work. I mean, that's perhaps the single, you know, people who do great things 
with a management and a senior management team that is either on the wrong problem or is basically working with an investment thesis that is old and tired and, and was relevant for where they were when they got there. These are often very smart people doing perhaps the wrong thing at the wrong time. Um, but you're looking for the second tier of engineer. You know, we, we typically work in, in pretty IP intensive or technology intensive environments. You're looking for exceptional engineers, exceptional marketing people, exceptional salespeople, people who are doing some great work, but are often on the wrong problem. Um, and then, you know, an example of that is someone's been heavily invested in for growth. It's a VC like stuff, you know, and they've gotten to a point and for market reasons, for whatever reasons, you know, the, the world doesn't want growth from them anymore. They want competence and quality and something, you know, well done and well executed. Well, if you have a management team that still has growth is that, you know, the, the perpetual search for the hockey stick is their goal you're often not going to satisfy your customers' needs. And I can think of you know, two or three opportunities where really what we did was frankly just stop trying to find the next great growth product and do what they did with you know, regular systematic improvement and satisfy their customers to death and you know, with, with reasonably good results. Okay. And so do you go off looking for your companies or do the companies come to you? Wendy, if I were to... to Go back, and again, now I'm working for the last two, three years in a purely VC environment, so it's changed remarkably. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but in that work, if I were to try to do anything differently going back, it's, and I, I'm not sure how we would have done it, but it's a combination of the two. But when you're asking someone to hand over the keys, and yes, you're investing as well, um, it's an enormously trusted relationship, and so mm -hmm. it's, it's first person, second person, maximum third person word of mouth. I mean, I had tried every marketing and, and you know, enhancement and, you know, sort of a, a pull directed outreach, you know, known to man. These days with the access to social media, um, you would probably be able to do more uh, things we're doing now, you know, getting on Clubhouse, you know, get, get, getting <laughs> talked about this morning. Um, you know, you probably would be able to, to enhance your brand to some degree more, but it's still a try. I mean, I can't imagine someone hearing about this type of work on, you know, a LinkedIn post and calling you up and saying, can you, can I, can I give you the keys to my company? Mm -hmm. um, which is effectively what happens. I mean, we wouldn't, I, I, I would never have taken on one of these major projects without board control. So you're basically saying, look, guys, you know, if you want to fix this, um, we need complete board control. It's my management team. You know, we're, we're going to change absolutely everything and we're going to make you a lot of money, um, which is a compelling pitch if you're in a trusted position, which is a very tough pitch if you're, you know, basically off the street. Yes, I can't imagine many entrepreneurs or business owners being able to just pass that off, but no, you get to, to a, a point. Pretty, you've got to be in a pretty troubled circumstance, and it has to be a one-to-one -one recommendation from, from an extremely trusted source. Okay. So we were talking about, you know, they get into a pretty desperate situation. What mistakes do you think people are making, particularly when they're going cross-border and trying to grow? You know, I, I, I think it's, if I were to try to find a unifying theme, it would probably be just sticking to a working formula 
too long and ignoring the data in front of you, ignoring the, the, the world in front of you. I mean, you know, again, we talked about this water treatment company that hadn't sold in the States for years, um, but had terrific business in, in, in Southeast Asia, you know, a, a real a massive opportunity in China that we were able to take advantage of. Um, people working in Europe that were at the absolute forefront of their, of their business and technology. And, you know, still spending the large majority of their overhead and their resources on intercompany planning and strategy and nonsense in the U.S. where they just frankly had lost their competitive position. It wasn't, it was a shrinking business in the U.S. Um, it wasn't a, a market that made any sense, but they'd been doing it that way for 25 years and it was just easier to carry on. Um, sort of ignoring what was the, you know, the elephant in the room was that all their opportunities were outside. Um, it was just that particular stage of technology. It's a, a, a product that's typically sold into a, a country uh, where infrastructure is growing rapidly, where industry is growing rapidly. Um, you know, I have a, a significant thesis that there are industries that we should treat as pop-ups almost, steel. You know, um, I'm not, you know, if you drive between Gary, Indiana and Chicago, it's a uh, shocking artifact of, of, of a massive industry that just doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. um, you can drive through Bethlehem and see the same. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure that was a lack of competitiveness, a lack of drive. I'm not sure that it wasn't a build out that supported a massive infrastructural build in the States that's largely done. Um, and therefore mm -hmm. the need for replacement the need for maintenance, the need for, you know, we're, we're not building highways, bridges, skyscrapers at the pace that was necessary to go from an agricultural society to a very sophisticated uh, uh, sort of service and manufacturing society. China, I'm convinced, you know, for good or bad, will have miles and miles of tens of thousands of miles of Gary, Indiana's in 15 years. I mean, right. Only right. build out so much infrastructure. And the, the point, the point I'm making back to this other companies, you know, for this water treatment stage, it was, again, just an, a lack of understanding that they were needed and necessary and fundamentally, you know, extremely competitive in environments that were building out their infrastructure and not particularly useful in developed economies. Um, hmm. So those, you know, like Malaysia, like China, like, you know, they were doing terrific work um, in India. Russia was their biggest market for a couple of years. These were, you know, economies building out uh, infrastructure that needed what they had. And so back to your original question, it was just you know, to a certain extent, not watching what their customers wanted, you know, and, 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 you know, the second area is where, uh, you know, you can change businesses, you can change people, you can change markets, you can change customers, you can change products, you can change almost anything with a moderate amount of time. What you can't change is what your, your shareholders want. And, you know, that's another area that would be a consistent theme through the work that we did in those days, which was a misalignment between shareholders and the, the business conditions that people were operating under. Um, again, growth investors who were looking, the, you know, looking at it with a VC mentality at, at, at investments that could make their fund that were a 50, you know, a 50x possibility, constantly looking for that next massive growth where the business conditions, the people, the circumstance really justified a more value-oriented approach. You know, so often what we would do is play an intermediary role between those growth investors and then selling to value people, for example. I mean, so, you know, those are some of the circumstances that, that would lead to a, you know, a successful realignment of shareholders in the companies that exist. Hmm. 
Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. It's, it, again, it's setting the goal and getting everybody in alignment, which goes back to the beginning of the conversation. Including, including your shareholders. Right, including, yeah, all your yeah. stakeholders and your shareholders are part They're, of that. Yeah, they count. You're right. Okay, so I have to ask about language. If you're working with companies that are in at least five to ten different countries, connecting with the buyer, the customer, there's, you know, multiple languages around the world. What are some of the best practices you've seen for companies handling that, handling their global marketing in particular? Well, you know, it, it, it's a two-level question when in one of the things you and I discussed briefly before um, mitigates a lot of the challenges. Um, and, and then there are there's blocking and tackling because, of course, they're just plain and, you know, and depending on the country, but in many cases, a need to work in local languages, in a, in a, not only in a, in a communication sense, but in deep engineering and documentation, in, in, you know, the entire suite of, 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 of product, essentially. So, you know, the first, my first point is, is perhaps slightly off topic, but it's one I believe in very strongly. The first thing you can do to succeed in any market anywhere uh, for any reason and this, this goes especially for export, is just be exceptionally good at what you do. I mean, you know, it's 80% it's of the game is being good enough for people to put in the extra work to work with you, because it's always going to be extra work uh, to work with a company that's from another country. Um, you know, even you may have the best documentation, the most perfectly translated thing. You may have a country manager who she's exceptional at you know, everything they do and bicultural. And those are all critical factors, obviously, for long-term success. But if you are not extraordinary at what you do, none of that matters because it's always going to be extra overhead, extra hassle, extra communications, extra something to work with a foreign company. So my, my advice, and it's, it's true with people as well as companies, so, you know, just make sure that you're doing what you do. You have a reason to exist and that you have a reason to exist in foreign markets, in export markets or in, in joint venture markets or however you approach you know, building your sales out worldwide, that you have a reason for people to put a little extra work in. Because so it's let me push good. back on that a little bit because I hear you and that's certainly right. The best product theoretically should always win. When Microsoft launched, all the techies used to say, now I, you know, use Microsoft, love Microsoft, it's, you know, enables me to do so much. But a lot of techies would complain about it and say, oh, they're just really good at marketing and it's becoming the accepted product, but they're not the best. And so part of it was a combination of marketing. And then if I transition that over to if I know somebody's product is the best, but I go to their site and it's a, you know, poor translation or it's not translated. Yeah. Obviously it's impossible. I mean, yeah. having said that, you know, I'm out selling a VC firm at the moment, you know, and, and I'm selling both to portfolio, potential portfolio companies and I'm selling to people who want to invest in us. We sell a service at the end of the day, which is an investment service. Right. Um, I promise that Andreessen and Bessemer and Sequoia could have a, a no website or a horrible website and people in Saudi Arabia or uh, Morocco or uh, Eastern France would line up to invest in those companies. You know, it, they have no trouble whatsoever attracting limited partners with the, now they happen to all three have exceptional websites, exceptional outreach, they're good companies. So not minimizing 
at all the need for long-term success to build up all of the things to have exceptionally good communications in whatever language you think is, is not only language, but approach. If you look at a, a Japanese website or a Japanese, God forbid, PowerPoint, I don't know if you've ever seen a Japanese PowerPoint presentation. It's, you need a microscope to get through the amount of detail on every page. <laughs> no, no, but I'm, I'm dead serious. A magnifying glass won't do it. Um, oh, so, I yeah. am laughing because you, you know, for anybody listening to this, it would be well worthwhile to go back and listen to the podcast that will launch right before you um, with Jamie Gelbtuck. She's a cross-cultural expert, and I asked her, I said, why is it that Americans are known as better presenters than people around the world? And she's got a cultural explanation for it. For years, I've wondered about why there's that reputation or, or something mm -hmm. there, and she talks to that. Mm -hmm. but, but go and, ahead. And I guess, so, so, no, no, but I, 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 there are multiple steps in establishing long-term success in any market around the world. And, and, and no one would doubt for a second the importance of establishing exceptional communications in not only, that's why I use the Japanese, because not only in language, but also in presentation, in methodology. How do you think about you know, a presentation? How do you work through it? They're all very different in different places. Some much more similar, some remarkably different. Mm -hmm. um, there's a need for deep, especially in, in my environment, in an IP intensive environment, deep understanding of the legal implications of the IP protections. All of these things are fundamental to cementing any early gains and building out to long-term success in these markets. So I would ne you know, never challenge any of that. I'm just suggesting that if, if one wanted to look at step one, step one before any of these concerns, oh, right. making sure that you've got something that's worth having because right. it's always going to be a little extra friction working with a foreign firm. Now I, I would love someday I, 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 until the change, the last change in CEO at Microsoft, I've never used a Microsoft product. If I could possibly help it, <laughs> I now am, am on teams. We're using exclusively teams. I think it's the biggest turnaround, honestly, in a company uh, since IBM did their last one in the sixties. It's remarkably better in every way. And, the, and their share price reflects that. Um, but I would, at some other time in another forum, love to debate the, techies, quote-unquote, the word you used, a version of Microsoft versus why it was successful worldwide. I mean, it became indispensable. You simply right. couldn't work in a worldwide environment. You couldn't, I mean, Microsoft, Microsoft and Apple are remarkably ubiquitous in Japan, both. Um, and tremendous, I, I, would, I would suggest that, you know, again, that they made themselves indispensable. They could, yes. have, they could have marketed in Swahili. It wouldn't have made the slightest. You could not export out of Japan and interact with your customers worldwide if you didn't deal with Windows. It, was, it became indispensable. Right, but they were also, yeah, so it's almost a chicken and an egg. They, yeah. they built something good, but if they had given me the user interface with just Japanese, I wouldn't have been able to use it. No, but you would have trained and hired someone who could if your entire export business depended on it. In other words, you're, you're, you're in Japan and you've got kind of a kludgy Japanese product, but you're, you know, your biggest customer in States and UK demands that you, in, you know, that all of your, your electronic data management is in Microsoft environment and it's only in English or it's in terrible Japanese, you'll find a way to use it.
I mean, again, not none of us yeah. aspire to be as indispensable as Microsoft was at one point and still is in many cases. Right. But it does illustrate the point to some extent. And again, people who thought it was nonsense honestly don't understand, truthfully, in my opinion, don't understand how infrastructure works. Right. But I think, I mean, again, I think it goes back to the chicken or the egg is, is they built some really good technology, but they also knew their buyer who wanted to be able to use it in a comfortable language. And so that's an interesting thing that we're running into now is these tech companies are building fantastic products, but they're not thinking about globalization early enough on. So when they go to globalize it, they haven't built it accurately to easily translate or handle languages and so I've seen a number of companies like that where it becomes very cumbersome and I'm like oh if they just thought about this at the beginning and at least again as as a, a you know as a Japanese VC our only criteria we have many criteria of course for investment but the the, the sort of 80% weighted criteria is that we invest in companies that need to be in Asia in the next year that need to be both because uh, that's all we don't invest in Japanese companies. We only invest in North American companies and we have an Israeli mandate, but it's, it hasn't been active yet. Um, we invest in, in North American companies who are poised to do exceptionally well in Asia, particularly Japan and then ASEAN and, uh, and, and the GCC, the, the Gulf. Um, that's our primary criteria. So, okay. you know, we're looking, but the, you know, the first thing is, they have to be exceptional. They have to be doing things that is, you know, has every reason to exist worldwide. Um, second, they have to fit in, you know, what we really bring to the table from a value add perspective is, is a deep knowledge of, of Japanese tech markets. Um, I'm not gonna bore you with, but our partners are really super well-connected, uh, super uh, well-versed, uh, including one of the first employees of Netscape and NTT, went on to run Digital Garage, one of my partners. But what we know uh, really well is what products are poised to succeed in Japan, in the Gulf, in the sand, because of their structural capability, because of market particularities. And so we're investing in those companies that should be remarkably successful in Asia. Okay. That's, that's our whole mandate. So we do this all day long. And to your point, uh, Wendy, they not only have to have, you know, first, a product that is, is terrific, a service, uh, an offering. Secondly, it has to be appropriate from a technology infrastructural perspective in the markets that we look at. Mm -hmm. And often there's nothing people can do about that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's right. just, and third, their boards, their investors, and their management have to have this as a top priority to exactly your point. So they are prepared to spend time, money, and energy on markets that are, after all, more difficult, um, that have extra costs, that have extra overheads, that have extra risk. You know, any really terrific U.S. tech company, their second market is Japan. And, you know, we're looking at much earlier stage companies that realize that and that are willing to work with us to understand market uh, possibilities and who absolutely, to your point, are, are driven to be market ready, sort of, you know, within a very short time frame. Um, so that's, that's absolutely a fundamental characteristic of anyone who's going to succeed. And you're right, it's much tougher to do later on. Um, so, okay, so it's harder. It takes time, money, energy, and you've got to think of it from the start. Why would anybody do it? 
Well, let, let's take a, let's take a, a, again a company we're investing in. I'm just I'm thinking of one who's you know they're, they're, we we invest relatively early stage. They have about uh, four to five million dollars worth of uh, ARRs annual reoccurring revenue in the states. They're two years, three years old, getting terrific traction and growing, you know, really significantly. Their product happens to be very very useful for the Japanese market, as is tomorrow with some significant documentation changes, but I mean, you're talking about relatively modest work. You're not going to have to redo the product. The product as it is makes complete sense in the Japanese context. There are, we have, uh, we've identified initial customers that would want to take it on immediately. If a company at this stage is worth, like just for example, 10 times its revenue, and we can add 40% in, in six months to their revenue, um, they just gained $50 million in value. Um, that's why. Okay. Okay, you said it better it's, than I could have. But. It's not super complicated. I mean, it's, it's, you know, being able to grow faster and leverage your, your assets, across, you know, without having to develop new products, without having to develop or, or create new things, but taking something that is suitable immediately with, yes, all the correct things that you've talked about, a great website, great documentation, terrific country manager, the right few customers to start, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that, that's half the work of creating, or half, 10% of the work of creating a new product, and you just added 40, 50, 60% to your value. Thank you. Okay, so it's 10% additional work to get like a 40% return, because that's, I mean, are those numbers? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's more than that, because again, you're, you're typically in these startups, you're looking at 10 times revenue. Okay. Yes, because that's all hear a lot of people saying, well, I don't, you know, translation is so expensive, you know, and doing that marketing side of it. And I'm like, yeah, but the return is phenomenal. So don't look at it as an expense, look at it as an investment. Absolutely. And again, the same people often wouldn't, uh, wouldn't hesitate to put X number of millions of dollars into a new product. Into development or research. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, this is what we talk about, about boards and management and investors who are committed um, because there's some people who care. And, and I, I'm in no position to judge. There are many ways to make success. Right. But we're looking for those people who are committed to using, you know, worldwide growth as, <clears throat> as a value multiplier. That's and again, these small companies, what are they looking? They're looking to be worth a lot of money. (laughs) Of course you want to change the world and you want to do terrific things and you want to help people around the world achieve things that they might not be able to achieve otherwise. And those are, you know, those are obviously the the, the primary reasons you do your work, but you know, making your company worth more is not bad either. Um, Yeah. And, you know, but there's another point that I think is essential to discuss, uh, you know, perhaps relevant for your, your, your listeners. Um, that's the offensive piece. And, you know, we're looking typically, at, you know, for the offensive piece, because if we don't invest in somebody, honestly, it doesn't matter what they do um, for, for, from our selfish perspective. Um, but there's a defensive piece that is super important these days as well. And Uber perhaps is the best example, having just paid $3 billion for their, uh, for their Kuwait-based uh, equivalent. There's a defensive part, which is that, especially as you look at how much easier it is to create marketplaces, to build out technical companies that are primarily market-based, like an Uber, like even Amazon, to some extent, if you exclude their cloud services. Um, 
it's relatively straightforward. It's a lot of work. You have to have exceptionally smart people. You have to be, you know, have some great mark, but it's not impossible. And the copycat or the me too or the localized version of things is becoming faster and faster and faster. And if you don't go out and take leading market share in big markets early, you're going to get you know, locked out of those markets in a reasonable hurry if, if you're doing something big. Um, you know, think WeChat, think Alibaba, keep, you know, go right on down the list. Think Cadre, which was the company in Saudi that Uber just had to pay $3 billion because they built a, a Uber clone. It was a bunch of ex-Uber people. They did a super job of building a Middle Eastern Uber and it was worth $3.5 billion to them. Um, there's a defensive piece here and the more, the less that you're deep tech and the more that your marketplace or, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, SaaS based business models, the more that you've got to think defensively as well, or these markets are going to be off limits to you forever. So, you know, I'll get to it in five years when we've dominated the U S can be exceptionally short sighted. Um, you know, it, it, everything depends as, as usual, you know, but, but it can be exceptionally short sighted. I love to hear you explain that because you've got real life experience talking about that and we write about it and we talk about it, but to hear it from you is fantastic. Now we're running out of time, okay. so I got to jump over to some personal questions so we get to know you. I think you know this one's coming. What's your favorite foreign word? You know, I wrote it down somewhere and we said there were two. One was a phrase and one is a word. I, I just was thinking because I knew you were going to ask. Uh -huh. There's a phrase in kind of a, a mixed Malay Hokkien uh, phrase from, from uh, uh, Malaysia and Singapore called Takamguan, which I love, which is just so unsatisfied with a situation that you, you literally can't stand it. And I don't know what the English equivalent. So, you know, Takungwan, you just lost your backgammon game by one piece. And it's, it's, you can taste the dissatisfaction. Um, it's a nice word. I love it. And it's nice because it's a mix of, of, of English, Hokkien, and, and Malay, which, you know, only exists in that very sort of small environment in, in, in West Malaysia. How would, how would you spell that? God alone knows. Uh, T-A-K, perhaps. Uh, um, C O M or some variant of that, and Guan is uh, uh, is Hokkien is G U A N. Um, okay, that was pretty uh, close. That's um, awesome. Well, this is a, this uh, um, sort of um, straight Chinese uh, of, of patois, whatever you'd like to call, it, isn't written in most cases. Right, <laughs> right, right. Everybody right. speaks another language perfectly well and reads and writes in either you know either Mandarin or English or Malay, you know, in, in a perfectly good fashion. Um, so it's not written very often, but that, that should be in a product. And the other one I like a lot is, uh, again, a Javanese uh, Malay word, which is uh, Mirajo, um, and M-E-R-J-A-O-K, and that K in the end of Malay words, it's sort of a guttural stop, um, which is, I, I, again, there's no English, I, I like it because there's no English word for it that I can think of, which is a, a a, uh, an, a, an emotional state where it's a pouting is the closest thing I get, but it's pouting at a truly epic professional level and where almost always the pouty on the other side gives in because someone is Marajo. Um, it's, you know, that's a, that's a nice word. Again, I just can't even imagine an English equivalent. This is, this is professional pouting.
<laughs> you know, I got a teen at home. Both these words are really good. It's the pouting that gets its way. That's the power of it. And it, it can be it can be male or female. There's absolutely no gender bias here. I mean, this is a really people who are marajo can. You know, it's 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 non non gender binary in any sense. Oh, that's awesome! I love those words. All right, how about your favorite vacation? I would say it, it, my favorite vacation, and it's it's honestly, we've been so privileged given our work. Um, you know, we just took last year before the plague here uh, two weeks with my two adult children, uh, about twenty five and twenty seven uh, year old children, uh, to Ecuador. So that's the most recent. Oh, to the Galapagos. No, no, absolutely not. We specifically avoided that. Um, we went, to, none of us had ever been, to, I, I've been to, I had business in Colombia, but I've never been sort of south. And, and, and so we rented a car. We drove over 3,000 kilometers. We used Airbnb everywhere. Airbnb has changed everything in places, yeah. like, you know. So, you know, where there are either mega resorts, which are what they are, um, right. or, or nothing. Um, you know, Airbnb allows you to travel in a completely different way in a country. Yeah. So we, that was the most recent, uh, uh, to, but that's, you know, it, the place was remarkable. I can't possibly recommend it more strongly. Just, you know, an incredibly interesting vacation. I speak zero words. I mean, literally zero words of Spanish. And we, and there's moderately little English once you get out of Quito or, or Guayaquil. Um, so, but terrific, but, but the best of all, and again, this may be the time and the circumstance, but we, uh, my now wife and I, um, three years in a row rented a car in, uh, Bandung in the West of Java and drove, you know, spent four weeks, but three years in a row taking our, our sort of long summer vacation, driving across Java and dropping the car in Bali in the end. And that was magical. Each time, each time we took a different route, we climbed volcanoes, we went to the beach, we you know stayed in little uh, Chinese sort of business hotels around. The Indonesia at the time had severe currency controls. So you actually had a nice, big, middle class internal tourism industry. So very few foreign visitors, but a nice big built out. So you just, we actually, the, the woman who rented, these were land cruisers at the time, uh, who rented them was Siti. Uh, Hoffman, Hans Hoffman, if you go back and look, was the guy who wrote the original Insight Guides. Oh, right, yeah. Right? And so he was a German guy, he lived in Indonesia forever. Um, you know, before they became APA Guides and they've been sold to someone else again since, but they were the original Insight Guides. And his wife, Siti, ran a, a car rental uh, place out of Bandung. And uh, so that those were, I mean, all three years were just, there's nothing. Good. And again, I, we were young and we were just dating, so that, you know, obviously had, something to do with it as well yeah yeah but oh my gosh that sounds fantastic yeah those were terrific yeah well any final recommendations for our listeners well you know again i told you uh, there's a pretty uh, active brown um alumni network for students who are looking at where they're heading and sort of planning their careers and looking for recommendations and jobs and internships, et cetera. So I you know, try to, to participate in that where possible and try to mentor at least two or three kids, often from, from uh, New Hampshire, where, where I'm from originally. Um, you know, just it's so hard to get good advice uh, for certain kids. So try to participate in this. And, and the most common question and it'll come back to something you've heard from some of our business discussions is, you know, how do I get into international business? Mm. You know, how do I, should I go to Middlebury and study, you know, Russian and, and do a degree in international relations? Or, you know, what is the right path? And things have changed 
um, a lot. You know, there's, there's virtually no, there's no massive expatriate com community with Europeans and Americans going around the world anymore. It exists, but it's small. I mean, compared to what it was, people are exceptionally smart and well-educated everywhere. There's no reason, again, to introduce friction where it's not necessary. You know, if you're working in Taiwan, they're exceptionally smart, well-educated Taiwanese kids. Why would you possibly introduce uh, friction in language and in cost and in everything else, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There are South Africans who are super smart. There are people around the world. So, you, you know, especially in banking and occasionally consulting, there are still expatriates out there, but it's, it's a relatively small number. So, you know, the, my, my advice to these to, to the, is always, again, go back to what we talked about, be exceptional. You know, get really super good at something, and there's a market for what you, what you do anywhere in the world. Um, and that then becomes under your control, as opposed to, you know, going out with a, a degree in, in Japanese and international relations is, is super. And, and I think it makes people much better people and it's, it's rich and it's wonderful. It, it, there aren't many jobs for that profile necessarily. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. there's teaching and there are the usual introductory steps that people can take. Having said that, if one becomes an exceptional AI, you know, artificial intelligence architect, there's no country in the world you can't work in. Right, so right. If one becomes an exceptional teacher, um, if one becomes, I, I'm thinking of someone who's, a, 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 who's, my son has been in the maritime industry since he started, you know, who's an exceptional ship's engineer. Um, and so I'm not just speaking about software or, you know, or, or the quote unquote sort of creative professions, just be really good at what you do. You know, it's interesting. When I was in high school, my, I told my, you know, one of the career opportunities I was bouncing around was becoming an interpreter and majoring in Spanish. Mm. My dad gave me the same advice. He said, go learn something and do the language too. And that's what we look for in our interpreters um, and our translators. Interpreters spoke in translation is written, but we look for people who have deep knowledge in a subject and they're fully bilingual. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think it's Someone, really good advice. Ship's engineer, who's you know, one of the most qualified people in the world. There's, there's no country in the world, if it happens to be, a, he woke up tomorrow morning and said, geez, I really want to be in Ghana for a bit. There's a job in Ghana. I mean, it may not pay as well. <laughs> no, no, but I'm dead serious. I mean, he's a top 15, top 20 person in the world at what he does. There's a job everywhere. Not, none of yeah. us, you know, many of us won't, I won't ever get to that top 10, but, but again, think of where you 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 already are with what you've done with businesses and, and where you know where the the business is going. You know the rollout of five G is worldwide. Yes, every country yes. in the world is working. Be a network engineer. Be a terrific uh, 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 aquaculture expert. So mm -hmm. I, be a terrific teacher. Um, there are always jobs. Right, right, right. I think that's fantastic advice. Well, where can people reach you if they want to get in touch? Um, probably the best place is LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, LinkedIn, um, these, uh, uh, all my details are on LinkedIn. And if you do Jeffrey Smith um, at LinkedIn and use uh, either Next Boston or SIP Global Partners is my present VC firm. Either one of those that will bring you uniquely to me because unfortunately, at least in a Western context, uh, my name is <laughs> reasonably, reasonably <laughs> ubiquitous. Um, but if you go to Jeffrey Smith and look up either Next Boston uh, or SIP Global Partners, you'll find me immediately. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic discussion and I've learned so much. I'm super excited to carry on our conversations and keep in touch. Thank you again. All right. That sounds great. So we'll talk to you soon and thank you listeners for listening. I hope you learned a lot because I certainly did. We'll talk to you next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.